Welcome to Tisky Sour. Tonight we're talking about drugs and mugs. Drugs, because the government has announced its drug strategy today. They're launching a new war on drugs, all rather cynical. At the same time, there were a lot of people who made mugs of themselves this week, and that includes Dominic Raab, Kit Malthouse, two more Tories who have gone out to try and justify the unjustifiable, which is the Downing Street Christmas party, which happened in last winter's lockdown. We're also going to give you some serious updates on the COVID situation and talk about the latest row concerning free speech on campus in Durham. That also involves a lot of mugs. Ash, pleasure to be joined by you this Monday. How are you doing? Uh, I'm great, man. How are you? I want some of what you're having. That's all I can say. When we're not remote, we can... I think I just can, inhaled no, some, can... like, some leftover parmesan on my table to make that joke. You know the score. Do hit the subscribe button if you haven't already. Tweet your comments and your questions on the hashtag TiskySour or put them in the YouTube comments box. Let's get started. It is 50 years since the UK introduced the Misuse of Drugs Act and America launched its war on drugs. Since then, a decisive winner has emerged. It's drugs, with the illicit drug market accounting for nearly 1% of global trade. Boris Johnson, though, is not giving up the fight. His government has vowed to crack down on the consumption of illegal drugs in the UK by tackling recreational users. We're not going to uh, sit idly by when you have a lifestyle users also uh, using uh, Class A drugs, and we're going to be coming down tougher on them. When it comes to coming down tougher on casual drug users, the measures suggested include confiscating the passports of those found with drugs and sending out warning messages to the previous clients of drug dealers after confiscating their phones. These announcements came hot on the heels of a Sunday Times investigation which found traces of cocaine in areas of Parliament which are only accessible to people with parliamentary passes. An anonymous special advisor writing in the paper alleged... It's relatively common to see people, particularly MPs staff, who are messed up. You see them wandering the halls with a glazed look, staggering about. You just look the other way or up to the vaulted ceilings of Parliament to gaze at the majesty of the place. Any kind of issue for the party is only dealt with when you might bring media scrutiny onto them. As long as you keep it low-key and out of the papers, everything is pretty much okay. Perhaps if the Prime Minister wants to discourage middle-class drug use, he could start by ringing round his office. That could require honesty, though, and that is something rarely forthcoming in rows about drug laws. In an interview with The Sun on Sunday this weekend, Boris Johnson said, Drugs are driving a lot of misery and we can fix it. They're not going to make you happier. They're not going to make you more successful. They're not going to make you cooler. They're bad news. Boris Johnson there sounding a lot like a supply teacher covering the dreaded mandatory lesson on drug awareness. It's a far cry from the tone of this answer in 2005. Have you snorted cocaine? Yeah, I tried to. You tried to snort cocaine? Unsuccessfully a long time ago. Sorry. I don't want to get any now we don't know who boris johnson struggled to take drugs with in his uni days but we do have a few 
contenders. Jeremy Hunt and Michael Gove both attended Oxford at the same time as the Prime Minister. And along with Dominic Raab and Rory Stewart, they were among the Tory candidates in 2019 or in the 2019 leadership contest who all admitted to having dabbled in illegal substances. Yes, while legislating harsher penalties for drug users, the Conservative benches are awash with members who've dabbled in narcotics. Yet for all of Boris Johnson and Priti Patel's talk of the need to name and shame middle-class drug users, none of their colleagues were arrested for it, had their passports taken, or appeared to suffer negative consequences of any kind, personally or professionally. And that's not unusual. A recent study found one in five adults between 16 and 24 used illegal drugs in the past year. Most will have had no contact with the police or negative effects requiring medical interventions and whisper it. Lots of them will probably have had quite a lot of fun. We're used to dishonesty in politics, right? But it's when it comes to drugs, it just seems more dishonest than any other topic because they don't even pretend to believe what they're saying. I think we have to deal with this question of drugs policy in two halves. And I know we're going to talk about problematic users and incarceration a little bit later. So let's focus on the issue of recreational use. Now, we know that safe recreational use exists because it is present in literally every single human culture throughout human history, and that is the story for most users of psychoactive substances. Most people who use psychoactive substances don't go on to develop a problematic relationship with them. Most of them are able to, you know, take a drug, either have fun or maybe have a bit less fun, but not have a need for any medical intervention and it's a kind of take it or leave it thing. This is something which everyone instinctively knows in their own lives, not necessarily because they themselves have taken drugs, but because you probably know and are close to somebody who does or has. So this is a very common sense position. Unfortunately, this is not the position which is being articulated by politicians or then reproduced and amplified through the media. So you kind of have this wholly artificial feedback loop between everyone saying things that they don't mean. So on the one hand, you've got, well, the public want to see action on drug users. Well, the public includes, you know, up to, uh, you know, a fifth of 16 to 24 year olds who've taken drugs in the past year. So year on year, that number's only going to get bigger. Uh, one in 11 uh, 16 to 59 year olds having used illegal drugs in the past year. Again, year on year, that's only going to get more. So you have drug use really being more prevalent and ordinary within society than regular church going, which is something like 11%, right? Only 11% of the population. And yet we maintain this collective delusion that it is something wholly aberrant and outside of society when it's not. And I think that's because what, what drugs does is serve as a useful moral dividing line. So on the left, you often hear people talking about, oh, it's all those coke-sniffing Tories, all right? So it's decadent, it's bourgeois, uh, you know, it's something to be uh, suspect of. When you have people talking about drug use amongst working-class people, it's then a dividing line between the deserving and the undeserving poor. So the sort of decent hardworking, upstanding folk versus crackheads and smackheads. It's a way in which we try and draw distinctions between ourselves and other people. And it is deeply hypocritical. And it's certainly not the basis of any evidence-based policy, but it's unfortunately the basis of policy in most countries across the world. Uh, and I do just want to add one more thing, which is I think that there was something 
accidentally honest about what Boris Johnson wrote in The Sun on Sunday when he says taking drugs won't make you cooler. In fact, I would say probably the best advert I've seen for not taking drugs is that you might end up being a Tory minister. <laughs> as, as you said, we are going to talk about the more, obviously lots of people's lives are seriously damaged by drugs, and we're going to talk about that in, in a moment and the correct sort of legislative responses to that. But it does frustrate me that, you know, the two respectable sides of this argument are people saying we have to be super tough on drugs. Um, we need to provide a deterrent. We need to crack down on the gangs. And the other side is we need a harm reduction approach that recognizes that people taking drugs are vulnerable or doing it for, you know, different complex reasons. And I suppose for obvious reasons, no one's willing to stand up and say, yeah, many drugs and many contexts in which drugs are taken are, are damaging. And we should as a society work to limit that. But Lots of people's experience of taking lots of drugs are fun and their life would be poorer if that were denied to them. And, and that is just something that's bizarrely unsaid in polite discourse in Britain. And I say bizarrely because I'm just very, very confident that over 50% of the people we see talking about this on television and in parliament have not just taken drugs, but they've taken drugs and enjoyed it probably multiple times. I'd find it difficult to believe that wasn't the case. And that's why I find the whole thing so dishonest. We will talk about the broader issues, though. First, let's take a look at a bit more of Boris Johnson dressed as a policeman this morning. Look, this government is absolutely determined to, to fight drugs and to make sure... That I, I, take a, I take the view that it's a long time, really, since you've heard a government say uh, that drugs, uh, Class A drugs, are bad and bad for society, bad for opportunity bad for kids growing up in this country. That's my view. And I think, and I think it's something that we can, we can tackle, we can deal with. You've got, to, you've got to be realistic, you've got to be humane, you've got to be compassionate. You've got to recognize that overwhelmingly, the problem is caused by 300,000 people whose lives are simply chaotic, uh, who, are, who are torn apart by their own addiction. You've got to help them, you've got to do rehab, but you've also got to come down very, very hard on the County Lions gangs, and that's what we're doing. So that's Boris Johnson saying two quite reasonable things. We do need to help and think about the 300,000 people who suffer from crack and heroin addictions. I don't think anyone's going to pretend that's a good thing. We also should break up county lines. I don't think anyone thinks that is a good thing. But the first bit he said doesn't relate to either of those points. And I don't think Boris Johnson believes it himself. Class A drugs are bad. He's not being honest. Let's look at how Keir Starmer responded to the plans. There's no doubt that the drug problem has got a lot worse in the last 10 years, particularly issues like drug-related deaths and the county lines, which are destroying lives. And the question for the government is not just over the plans today, but the money that they've taken out of the system. Millions and millions of pounds have been taken out of the system over the years, and that has caused a lot of the problems. So I want to see the plans. I want to see the strategy. I want the Prime Minister to take responsibility for the money that's been taken out of criminal justice in the last 10 years that's caused many of these problems. Now, obviously, I'd like to hear Keir Starmer say legalise it. But if that's not what he's going to say, and I wouldn't really expect him to, he did make a good point there about the effects of 10 years of Tory austerity when it comes to drug deaths. Data from the ONS shows when the coalition took power in 2010, there were less than 3,000 yearly drug deaths in Britain. By 2020, that had increased by over 50% to exceed 4,500. Ash, I want your take on, on Labour's position here. As I said, I, I'm not expecting them to argue for decriminalisation. So if that's not what they're going to go for, you know, taking on the Tories on 
their culpability when it comes to damaging drug use and, and people dying of, of of drug poisoning, which was what those those stats were were from. That does seem to be a valid focus, right? It is a valid focus. And to be fair, this hasn't been, I think, the worst recent Labour performance when it comes to talking about drugs. You had what I thought was a frankly embarrassing display from Keir Starmer when he was asked about legalising cannabis. And he said no, because he's seen the damage cannabis can do in the hands of criminal gangs, which is obviously a complete contradiction. If you want to take cannabis out of the hands of criminal gangs, you legalise it. Any GCSE sociology student could tell you that that's what you should do. So I don't actually think this was a poor intervention, but I think it is missing a lot of content. So I don't think that you can separate the spate in drug-related deaths from the wider questions of austerity and the impacts of criminalization of those substances as well. So Keir Starmer is talking about the austerity part money being taken out of treatment pathways and also aspects of the criminal justice system, what he's not talking about is that criminalization itself can have a very corrosive impact on communities and make them as a whole more vulnerable to high problematic use prevalence. So one of the things that high rates of incarceration does is that it weakens family ties, it weakens community ties, it makes people less resilient when bad things happen in their lives. It makes them poorer. So what do you do? You, one, immiserate people to the point where they do turn to drugs like crack cocaine or heroin and develop a very problematic relationship to those drugs. Or indeed, you make them so unprotected and vulnerable that they are kind of ripe for exploitation in a county lines context. Now, county lines has become something of a buzzword. And I think that it risks being the site of a new moral panic where people don't really know what they're talking about. The fact is, is one of the reasons why you've had the growth of county lines drug trade is because you have an awful lot of young people in the cities who are socially excluded, who are vulnerable, and who are unprotected. And so an awful lot of children who you see in county lines exploitation are what are called looked after children. So they're subject to a child protection plan. Lots of them come from backgrounds where maybe they have family breakdown, history of incarceration in the family, a lack of support available for the parents, poor quality housing, perhaps they've been excluded from schools. And that story for the kids who are exploited within a county lines context is often the same story for the people doing the exploiting. We like to think of them, and I know that Priti Patel, Keir Starmer even like to talk about the people doing the exploiting within a county lines context as these kind of Machiavellian kingpins. They're not, not quite often. They're young people who are just a bit older than the people uh, who, who are working under them and who they're exploiting, who've come from very similar backgrounds, who've had to adapt to a very brutalizing set of circumstances in which to grow up. So unless you talk about the way in which criminalization actually makes communities a lot more vulnerable to the worst aspects of the drugs trade. I think that you're, you know, it might be something which can create a little bit of consensus and doesn't, you know, annoy too many, you know, retirees in the shires or whatever, but it's misleading. It's politically and I think socially dishonest. It's also not remotely persuasive to the people that, you know, they say they're trying to persuade because obviously they say we're trying to crack down on middle class drug use because people need to understand that their casual drug taking has real life consequences for other people because it fuels the drug trade. That argument on one level adds up. The problem is everyone they're speaking to understands that the reason that taking drugs leads to those bad outcomes is, as you say, Ash, because it's all criminalized. 
it's just the least convincing argument you could possibly make to the target audience because the target audience, all rightly, in my opinion, blame the government for criminalizing the thing in the first place. Obviously, there's nothing intrinsic about any of these substances that should cause harm and should you know, fuel county lines and gang crime or whatever. It is the legal structure we build around them. I mean, you're 100% right. And I just, you just made me, you know, re remember something that really annoys me, which is the way in which middle class uh, lifestyle drug use is being lumped in with county lines. These are actually two remarkably different drug trades. If you're somebody who is buying cocaine or ketamine or MDMA for a night out, it is highly unlikely that you're interacting with somebody who is involved in county lines exploitation. County lines exploitation, and this is also why it's called county lines, is sending uh, you know, young people from the cities out to you know, smaller towns and often seaside towns where you have, you know, larger concentrations of people who've got, you know, histories of, of problematic drug use, you know, addictions to crack cocaine uh, and to heroin, who've often been moved out of inner cities by councils and sort of shunted around. And that's why you've got this industry of young people going you know, out there being exploited to sell drugs. They're feeding the daytime drugs trade. So again, this is, this is a, a kind of comms bait and switch you can have whatever opinion you want about you know middle class lifestyle drug use mdma ketamine or cocaine but that is a very separate phenomenon from what the demand is which is fueling county lines it's a very very different thing the people who are buying those drugs in the county line context the daytime drugs trade they are not you know masters of their own destiny all right they're people with huge problems with addiction you know it's a healthcare issue they are truly suffering and it's misery feeding on misery so it's a slightly different thing of course there's violence and exploitation and dispossession in the supply chain and obviously in terms of the territory and so on and so forth when it comes to the middle class drugs trade i'm not saying that's not there but it is a different phenomenon from from county lines and they're all being lumped in together. And um, let's talk about the the alternatives. The alternative we've, you know, me and Ash um, are both obviously in favour of is decriminalisation. That has been implemented somewhere already in Portugal. Now, Transform is a drug policy think tank, and I got from them today a, a really good explanation of Portugal's drug laws. So they say, in 2001, Portugal decriminalised the personal possession of all drugs as part of a health-led approach. Possessing drugs for personal use is treated as an administrative offence, meaning it is no longer punishable by imprisonment and does not result in a criminal record. Drugs are still confiscated and possession may result in administrative penalties such as fines or community service. Whether such a penalty is applied is decided by a district-level panel made up of legal, health and social work professionals. These are known as commissions for the dissuasion of drug addiction. So what happens at these commissions for the dissuasion of drug addiction? Transform, explain. So they say, where an individual is referred to a commission for the first time and their drug use is assessed as non-problematic, so low risk, the law requires their case to be suspended, meaning no further action is taken. Fines can be issued for subsequent referrals. Where some problematic trends are identified, so that's moderate risk, brief interventions are proposed, including counselling, but these are non-mandatory. In high-risk cases, where more serious problematic behaviours and dependents are identified, individuals may receive non-mandatory referrals to specialised treatment services. In the vast majority of instances, problematic drug use is not identified and cases are simply suspended. 
Now, that to me sounds like a very adult, rational approach to drug policy. And we can look at the results because it works. Let's look at how drug deaths compare in Portugal to the UK. So in Portugal, the number of deaths from substance abuse has remained stable over the past 20 years. So between two and three deaths per 100,000 people. And that's been pretty steady from 1990 to 2017, especially from 2000 to 2017. In the UK, in contrast, deaths related to substance misuse have rocketed from around two deaths per 100,000 in 1990 to around seven deaths per 100,000 in 2017. Worth noting, this includes both alcohol and illicit substances. You might say at this point, sure, they have less deaths. That's potentially because they have a harm reduction model. People aren't stigmatized. They can go to hospital if they're worried about dodgy drugs or worried about overdosing. But maybe they have more addicts. Maybe they have more people that take drugs and so more people who get addicted but don't die. Again, the answer here is no. Between 1990 and 2016, alcohol and drug addiction levels remained stable in both Portugal and the UK and were consistently lower in Portugal. We have here an example of a, a different rational drug policy which clearly works. What is it? What's the barrier? Why do we have a, a political system where neither party, even under Jeremy, you know, even under a left leadership, neither party, Labour, Tories, was willing to say, let's do what they do in Portugal? Well, the thing that I'll say is that the tenor of the discussion in Scotland is very, very different. So in Scotland, where, of course, you've got the highest rate of drugs deaths in Europe, so the problems of uh, drug poisoning are particularly bad, um, you do have a kind of growing call for decriminalisation. This is something which is fast becoming a mainstream opinion. You've got the popping up of safe usage rooms. So that's a model which is going to be replicated in Bristol. And so I think that by necessity, the kind of instinctive knee-jerk reactionary prohibit or bust is something which has changed a lot in Scotland. The problem is, is that, you know, in a Westminster dominated model of politics where both major parties who get to form a government which, you know, still dictates really, you know, what the drug laws are in Scotland and in Wales, they are serving an audience of people who have been misinformed for decades about what a good drug policy is. Now, I think that there are contradictions in there and it's important to tease them out. Most people, I think, if you ask, look, have, has the drug policy of the last 50 years worked? They would say, well, no, evidently not. But if you'd ask them to move beyond that position, the thing that's getting in the way, I think, is this moral aversion to being seen to be soft on drugs. Now, some of this reticence, I think, is very understandable. And it's coming from a position of, well, it seems really scary to say, uh, you know, get rid of barriers towards accessing crack cocaine and heroin. But some of it is also, I think, the, the product of media hysteria. Today, when I was tweeting, not just about this government's drugs uh, announcements, but also there's a story recently about an influencer who used to be on Love Island, who was filmed snorting cocaine in Dubai. And I was saying, I actually think that Something that's worse than snorting cocaine in Dubai is filming somebody doing that and selling it to the sun. People were like, well, she deserved it. She should have known better. She shouldn't have been doing it anyway. She's a cokehead. She's a junkie. Other people, when I was tweeting about 
you know, the drugs policy in this country was saying, well, you know, you wouldn't want crack dealers outside schools selling to five-year-olds. And look, I'm no stringer bell. I don't know why you'd sell crack to a five-year-old. They don't have money. But this whole tenor of the discussion goes back to the thing I was saying, which is the reason why we're so attached to a policy which has been failing for five decades. It's because drugs are this moral dividing line between the worthy and the unworthy. And until we let go of that moral distinction, we're never going to be able to pursue a policy like the one they have in Portugal, which has saved lives. I want to go to a couple of comments. We've got some good ones. Um, so we've got a super chat from Act Up for Good with a tenor. Thank you very much. Politicians, particularly Tories, never mention the social issues that lead people to substance abuse to escape the horrors of neoliberal capitalism and lack of social services. That, you know, that's quite evident in the drug deaths rising from 2,500 to 4,500 between 2010 and last year. Babs tweets on the hashtag Tisky Sour. Drug use went up in the Thatcher major years too. Why do so many people turn to drugs under Tory governments. Both of these comments raise the really interesting intersection between sort of broader societal issues and drug use, and especially problematic drug use and addiction. The next chart I have for you tells a really interesting story and how how this relates to sort of global politics. Because so far I've compared the UK and, and Portugal, both countries with sort of a moderate level of problematic substance use. But you can see on this chart here, there are some real standout countries. So you can see here, Russia, they went from having 15 per 100,000 people deaths per year from substance abuse, right the way up to about 40. So that was the collapse of the Soviet Union. And then you have sort of gangster capitalism, mass unemployment, sort of low level lawlessness, and lots of people getting especially alcohol addiction problems, but also other drug addiction problems, deaths soar. And while, you know, we demonize Putin, and he's definitely a bad guy, you can kind of see the reintroduction of, of social order and some sense of stability from you know the 2000s onward in those stats. The other standout there is the United States, which used to have you know a pretty normal level of drug deaths in, in 1990, so lower than the UK, in fact, um, similar to Germany. And that has tripled, or more than tripled, quadrupled in the past 20 years. And that's almost uniquely because they have a pharma industry which is so powerful they advertise to everyone opioids and encourage GPs to to prescribe opioids and, and painkillers to patients who didn't really need them and then who got hooked. And so you, I mean, you, you, you can see the effects of cutthroat capitalism, I think, in that chart there. And cutthroat capitalism doesn't come out very well. Actually, it's quite an interesting, like, I mean, I've only got six countries there. It's quite an interesting way of looking at sort of like the, the politics of a country. How many drug deaths do they have? What What is the the explanation for those? Because obviously we said, you know, some, some drug use is unproblematic, can be fulfilling. Some is clearly incredibly damaging and a sign of despair. And you can see that in Russia in the 90s, there was a lot of despair going around. And in the United States at the moment, there's a lot of despair going around. This tells you something about predatory capitalism and that it's very arbitrary in terms of what it deems to be a good drug or indeed a bad drug. So Michael, if I were to sell opioids to you, to Fox, to Gary, to Aaron, to Dahlia, to the whole Navarra media team, I could be looking at seven years in prison going up depending on, you know, is it my first offense and the scale of of my drug supply, right? That is the sort of standard thing that would happen if I was selling all of you guys opioids. If, however, 
I was part of the Sackler family, who are the owners of Purdue Pharma, who are responsible for the opioid crisis due to the overprescription of uh, oxycontin. You would have that name, your name, emblazoned over art galleries, you know, from New York to London. All right. You are seen as, you know, fine and upstanding pillars of society, despite your role in corroding an entire social fabric with the drugs that you sell, right? And it's, you know, the way in which that also intersects with the American healthcare system, the existence of pill mills, it is a different kind of healthcare environment. And that's why you've had the opioid crisis in the way that uh, you have had there. But that just tells you something about the lack of rationality dictating our drugs policy. The street dealer gets seven years, but the family responsible for the opioid crisis get fated, get celebrated, get a new wing of the Victorian Albert Museum named after them. It's disgusting. There was a debate on Twitter sort of the last 24 hours about whether or not America is dystopian. It was sort of a left versus centre debate. And I think that graph definitely tends towards the dystopian side of the argument. Let's go to our next story. The Tories are still tying themselves in knots over the Christmas party held in Downing Street last December, the existence of which no cabinet minister will either confirm or deny. This was Dominic Raab on Andrew Marr. Very straightforward question. Last Christmas, were Christmas parties allowed in London? So look, if you're, uh, so generally, no. No, no. generally, no. And yet we know there was a Christmas party at number 10. So how did that not break the rule? Look, I'm not going to say anything beyond what the PM has said uh, in relation to this. We've got, let's just be clear what we're talking about here. Something that took place a year ago. Unsubstantiated. people were dying. Unsubstantiated, anonymous claims being made. The PM has been crystal clear in relation to uh, any uh, any circumstances, events in Downing Street that the rules were complied with. And and the, the police have been very clear. They'll look at any letter, but they don't normally look back and investigate things that have taken place. Here we go. The idea that the police don't investigate things retrospectively has had many people wondering if the Justice Secretary has spent too many hours in lockdown watching Tom Cruise in Minority Report. That clip went viral for that particular reason. Luckily, though, for Rob, the next day, a response came to Schrodinger's party that was even more boneheaded. This was the police minister, Kit Malthouse, speaking to the BBC. A Christmas party last year at number 10 Downing Street. Uh, Would you support an official investigation into that party at number 10 that allegedly broke COVID rules? Well, look, I've been assured that no rules were broken. Um, and so that means there's there's nothing to show. Um, I don't even know if an event took place, but if it did, that no rules were broken. Um, it's for others to decide whether they'll go further than that, not for me. Surely you've asked if the event took place. I asked if, if, if an event took place and if uh, no regulation, if any regulations were broken, and I was assured none were. So you do know the event took place? Well, I don't know if it was an event. I don't know what the nature of it was. Should we call uh, it I a gathering? That, hold on a minute. Allegations have been made reassurances has been given. It's for others to decide whether they want to take it further. But from my point of view, I've asked for and received reassurances that no regulations were broken. Okay. Uh, Last year, Priti Patel said that um, one of your colleagues, Tobias, um, when Elwood had broken the rules, so Tobias Elwood had broken the rules by attending a Christmas business event around the same time. Um, By that same token, would people who attended this gathering have also broken some rules? 
Well, the regulations that were in place at the time obviously had implications for all of us, and we all had to pay attention to them. But as I say, the, the, the reassurances have been given that no regulations were broken uh, at whatever the event, in inverted commas, if there was an event, at whatever happened on that particular night. If there was an event, I am assured no rules were broken at that event, which may or may not have happened. Ash, this guy is the policing minister. I'm, I don't think he'd make a particularly good copper. I don't know if you saw that there was a um, series on the BBC about a detective who had all these delusions and he didn't know what was real and what wasn't. And his name was Stellan Skarsgård. So it's almost this sort of like quantum crime. So first, step one, work out whether the crime is real. Step two, work out is the suspect he's chasing even real. So in a sense, Kit Malthouse is sort of, you know, in this tradition of postmodernist detective fiction um and, and i kind of you know I'm, I'm kind of into into how how surreal it is it sort of subverts the expectations of the form um i mean playing those two clips back to back of dominic Raab and kit malthouse what you see is something which is really characteristic of the johnson government which is a really egregious breach of rules uh you know sense of offense to you know fair play an outrageous lie is being told and then you have these ministers sent out onto the broadcast round to do this mad dance in front of the presenters and just make it out of there it doesn't matter how stupid you sound because you're not gonna be sacked it doesn't really matter uh, if you put your foot in it because the aim is to protect the prime minister at all costs. And to be fair, as strategies go, this has been fairly successful for them. They've managed to weather an awful lot of scandals as a government simply by refusing to acknowledge the existence of accountability. And so one of the things that this tells me is that there is something missing in the journalists' toolkit, something missing in their arsenal. Because when they're presented by these flapping op octopuses in front of them they're still going are you sure you don't want to take me seriously no they don't want to take you seriously that's what they're there for so i think that in terms of political strategy and journalistic strategy it presents something interesting even if it's completely risible that's kind of when you need the sort of piers morgan to just like lay into them just make it clear how ridiculous it is what they're saying because i think the bbc thing to do andrew Marr especially does this is he asks a question he pushes once and then he just moves on to a different topic it's sort of like it would it would seem rude to to Britain's politicians to ask them more than three times the same question. If they just stall, they can get off the hook. And I think you're right that a sort of a more skilled or more aggressive interviewer wouldn't let that happen. I suppose what I was wondering about this theme because when this story first broke, I was assuming, look, this was a year ago. So while it was, you know, obviously lots of people were dying every day, lots of people have horrific memories of of last December. Time has passed and people feel things less intensely as time passes. So I thought because this has only come out a week, a year later, probably they would get away with this. But as the days have gone by and you've just seen ministers going out and give more and more embarrassing, unconvincing and sort of like offensively ridiculous answers to this question, maybe there'll be a cumulative effect of ministers going out and chatting obvious breeze, which is offensive to the people listening so often that it does start to to kick in, that people start to change their minds about them. You're right. The fact that this was 
a year ago means that this doesn't have the same punch as, you know, say Dominic Cummings, I think, breaching the rules in his eye test at Barnard Castle. So I think that strategically, there's something almost welcome about this for the government, which is, you know, the last couple of weeks, the story has been corruption, it's been sleaze, it's been second jobs, it's been COVID contracts, it's stuff which is still ongoing, and therefore, you know, more damaging, right? You know, you lift that stone, you're just going to find woodlouse after woodlouse with a lucrative consultancy job. Whereas I think something like a party which happened a year ago, particularly when I think this Christmas an awful lot of people are looking forward to the parties they want to have, the ability to connect with their families in ways which maybe they missed out on last year, they don't want to put themselves back in that place of thinking about just how much they gave up. So I think that this is a hard story for the opposition to nail and for it to create a sense of damage. You know, the mantra of it's one rule for them and another for us, it's becoming very hackneyed and it's becoming cliched. And I think that one of the things that it actually has done is mitigate the effectiveness of some of those, I think, much more serious scandals like corruption and contracts and cronyism. They do the mad dance, the accountability sheds off. I don't think anyone's going to have to resign. Not a big deal. Because who would resign? It's Boris Johnson's fault. So, you know, he's not going to go. A tweet from Rick Lines. Please don't give the impression that Russia has a good drug policy. Russia has approximately 1 million people living with HIV and the epidemic largely driven by the denial of harm reduction. Methadone is illegal. Few needle exchanges, harm reduction, NGOs suppressed, people who use drugs criminalized and stigmatized. Important comments. I should clarify, I, I wasn't really intending to suggest that drug policy in, in Russia was particularly progressive, but I do think the chart does show that there was something going on in the 1990s that happened less by the mid-noughties. And I would suggest that has something to do with the general levels of, of, of social stability in, in that country. Unemployment also fell in that time after a massive peak in the 1990s. So I think there's a clear connection there between drugs and despair, even if Russia didn't end up having an enlightened drug policy. Unless those numbers are fixed, you know, I'd be open to that suggestion as well, but I, I'm not aware that that is the case. Let's go to our next story. COVID cases are once again rising in Britain with over 51,000 cases reported in the last 24 hours. The weekly average is up 9% week on week, which is certainly not ideal. But thanks to the booster campaign, it's also not a disaster. Week on week hospitalizations are still down. This, of course, is all before the Omicron variant becomes dominant in the UK. 336 cases of Omicron have so far been confirmed across the four nations. But with it being significantly more transmissible than Delta, those numbers are almost certain to go up and they could do so very quickly. Boris Johnson, though, has insisted no new restrictions are needed. I think what we need to do, everyone just... just for the everybody to understand. I don't think that we uh, need to change the overall guidance and advice we're giving about Omicron in this country. We're still waiting to see exactly uh, how dangerous it is, uh, what sort of uh, effect it has in terms of deaths and, and hospitalizations. That was Boris Johnson saying we should wait and see how dangerous Omicron is before taking more action. It's a strategy which hasn't always worked well over the last two years. So what about the actions the government has taken? Well, almost everyone agrees that the booster campaign is going reasonably well, but they all agree that the booster shots are crucial to getting us through this winter. The other policy leaned on by the government has been met 
with less universal acclaim. That's the policies, the government's policy on borders. This is the government science advisor, Professor Mark Woolhouse. I think that may be a case of shutting the stable door after the horse has bolted. If Omicron is here in the UK, it certainly is. If there's community transmission uh, in the UK, and it certainly looks that way, then it's that community transmission that will drive the next wave. Uh, the cases that are being imported are important. We want to detect those and isolate any positive cases that we find, as we would for any case anywhere. But I think it's too late to make a material difference to the course of the Omicron wave if we're going to have one. With over 300 confirmed cases of Omicron, what Woolhouse said there makes some sense. It could be that border controls distract from the real problem, which is community transmission between people already in Britain. On that front, Tim Spector, who runs the Zoe app, explained that awareness of the different symptoms of COVID could be key here. You can see him speaking to Stig Abel on Times Radio. Is your concern that people might have cold-like symptoms and there's a super cold going around, there's various other colds going around, and they might not feel they have to test and, and maybe there should be messaging to, for people to test. If they're not at all sure, they should test. Absolutely, and this is what other countries have already done. Uh, they have uh, you know, public health messages that cold-like symptoms are uh, a clear symptom of COVID. At the moment, we're estimating that somewhere between one in three and one in four colds are actually due to COVID. And so that's quite a high rate of, of people that are currently going missing are not getting uh, even bothering to get a lateral flow test or getting a PCR test, going to parties and uh, spreading it around. So if, if that transfers to um, Omicron, then you know we're going to be uh, compounding the problem much faster than we would need to. So if we, we're serious about trying to slow the spread, we really should be, again, telling people to look out for all the symptoms, particularly if you've been uh, vaccinated, which are going to be milder, much more like a cold and maybe hard, very hard to tell apart. Tim Spector went on to say, we should really be encouraging people not to come into the office, not to go to that Christmas party if they're feeling unwell. Take a test and then when the symptoms subside, then they can come out. It doesn't have to be 10 days, but just those first few days are probably the most crucial. He says, we want to be telling people that if they don't feel well that day, don't go out to work, work from home, because the start of that sniffle, the start of that sore throat, that headache could be a mild dose of COVID that is just breaking through your vaccine. This all sounds very sensible. It all sounds relatively cost-free, but the government seem resistant to making this kind of change. The NHS hasn't updated its symptoms list since the first wave. What the NHS website tells you are the main symptoms of coronavirus. So a high temperature, a new continuous cough and a loss or change to your sense of smell or taste. We're all very familiar with these now. Crucially, it's not the case that it says these are the main symptoms and then there might be some secondary symptoms for which you should go get a lateral flow test. No, it says that these are the only symptoms for which you should go and get a test. There is no advice for if you've got slightly different symptoms, but which are also very much associated with COVID-19. I think that there are two explanations and it's probably a bit of both. One is a sort of institutional culture. So along the way, the UK has been quite slow to update the symptoms list with some of the characteristic signs of COVID. We were quite late to update the symptoms advice with uh, loss or change to taste or smell. And other countries had done it first. So I think that that is one aspect of it. 
for whatever reason, we've been slow to update the symptoms list. But then I think the second reason does relate to the thing that you're talking about in terms of not wanting to reintroduce the work from home advice because that conflicts with the financial interests of their property developer and commercial landlord mates in the city. And that's because the minute you update it and say, Okay, well, let's be honest, when you're vaccinated, the symptoms of a cold and the symptoms of COVID at the early stage are indistinguishable. So you should go get a PCR test. Well, that means that someone's going to have to foot the bill for workers self-isolating, disruption to businesses, and the fact that, yes, there is a wider economic cost to that. Now, me and you, I think, are in full agreement, which is if you're trying to cut that corner, that is a false economy. And it's a false economy because you end up with more people wandering around when they're symptomatic, when they're infectious, getting other people sick, you get more people having self-isolate, more people, unfortunately, uh, entering into hospitals and perhaps even dying. You bring yourself closer to having to reintroduce the kind of national restrictions that all of us would like to see avoided if possible. So it's a false economy. But I think that that sort of short-termist thinking has often you know, dominated the government who are split on the issue of, you know, how much should we spend on things like sick pay or universal credit and who are quite keen to cut corners, even if it will just end up costing you more in the long run. I suppose you can also explain it maybe like with reference to consumer confidence. I don't know. I assume they think that if everyone stays at home when they've got a cold, then, you know, everything's going to shut down and it's going to damage hospitality and everything, which is why I'd say just tell everyone to take a lateral flow test if they've got a cold. Because that's, you know, that's, that's just so cost-free. Just do that. I can I can see actually why they wouldn't tell everyone to get a PCR test because, you know, lots of people get colds and maybe the whole system would collapse. I don't know. I, I'm not, you know, qualified to say either way, but definitely the system wouldn't collapse if you just told everyone the moment you get a sore throat, take a lateral flow test. Just seems odd to me and self-defeating that they haven't done that. Let's go to some comments. TC with a fiver. In Portugal, the law is so uncontroversial that I don't think 90% of people even understand how different it is from the rest of the world. I'm Portuguese. That's super interesting. Because in this country, as we were discussing, so the Overton window means you can't, everyone from every party won't even countenance decriminalization. Whereas in Portugal, we've got the opposite, which is no one countenances the crazy system we have here. Paz, newest with a tenor. What the fuck is Boris cosplaying cops and robber barons now? <laughs> yeah, that's actually an interesting point. There was a, we, we mentioned it on a recent show that Dominic Cummings was saying, he was talking about Labour actually and his advice for them. He was saying, you've got to imagine that most people who don't really engage in politics, what they see when they watch the news is almost, you've got to imagine they're watching it on mute because they're not that engaged in the policy debate that is going on. They see politician, and in Dominic Cummings' example, it was, they said, in the general election, it was always Boris Johnson in front of a hospital. So it's people associated, Boris Johnson with hospital, Boris Johnson with hospital. If he's always at hospitals, he must care about them. Now, they're standing in front of police cars all the time. So... You know, and the idea is if you're watching on mute, you'll still know that Boris Johnson is the one who's who loves the cops. So I, I was surprised that Keir Starmer hadn't found a cop car to stand in front of. He was at a vaccination center this morning, so his clips were, were in front of that. Although, you know, people have a, a positive association to that as well. And let's go to our final story. The free speech on campus wars have claimed their latest victim. It's the Islamophobia celebrating secondary school girl leering Rod Liddle. Little, who writes for the Sunday Times and Spectator, was invited as a guest speaker to a formal dinner at Durham University. And in response, a number of students walked out. At the event, Little's comments included the following. 
A person with an X and a Y chromosome that has a long dangling penis is scientifically a man, and that is pretty much scientifically the end of the story. Now, apart from why he's talking about genitalia at a Christmas dinner, that's not true. That's not scientifically the end of the story. Actually, the, the biology of, of sex and gender is very complicated. I have an interview coming out with the biologist Julia Serrano on exactly this topic. Look out for that. He also said, It is fairly easily proven that colonialism is not remotely the major cause of Africa's problems, just as it is very easy to prove that the educational underachievement of British people of Caribbean descent or African Americans is nothing to do with institutional or structural racism. Now, it would be interesting to know what little thinks would explain those inequalities in outcome. And indeed, it might seem relevant that an account owned by Little on a Millwall fan forum once posted that black people were, I quote, on average, a little under 10% thicker than whites, 15% thicker than East Asians. Now, Little claimed he had been hacked. He admitted to many of the things which were written on that account, but for that particular comment, he said, I was hacked. The protests by students meant they were branded pathetic by the university college head. However, while Durham students were painted as childish and oversensitive by much of the press, the videos of the row paint quite a different picture. In this clip, you'll see the college principal, Tim Luckhurst, and his wife, Dorothy, speaking to students after the walkout. What are you frightened of, you silly people? I did you are an it's wonderful to see such commitment to free speech among Britain's elite. In the next clip, her husband, so that's the principal, appears to tell a gay student they should not be at university. The student off camera was referring to a 2016 article where Rod Diddle said poppers and lube were God's way of telling you that what you're about to do is unnatural and perverse. So that's why he's saying Rod Little thinks I'm unnatural and perverse. That's what he was saying there. Me too, though, I suppose. Ash. Conservatives are now trying to make Rod Little's right to speak to students about genitalia at Christmas parties a core demand in their battle for free speech on campus. Do you think they've chosen the wrong cause celeb this time? Look, the last time I started a conversation about Rod Little, I ended up having to sue Julie Birchill. So I'm not sure if you want to continue <laughs> this conversation, Michael. It could get very expensive. I mean, God, there's so much in these videos. First, I thought that the campus free speech wars were all about academic freedom, the right to carry out research, to teach students challenging material, not to give any idiot with bigoted views and a main line into the nation's broadsheets a after-dinner speaking spot, right? 
And I think the fact that, you know, the sort of lofty language of the free speech warriors when applied actually is in this like very petty self-serving status chasing scenario tells you a bit about what the actual core of the issue is very rarely is it about the right to carry out research the right to present challenging material to students that they do really need to know it's about preserving a stranglehold on elite institutions so you and your mates can feel important even if your values and your relevance are completely out of step with the new generation of people coming through and i think that that disdain for the young was perfectly encapsulated by that posh woman going, oss, 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 oss. That's not somebody who seems particularly committed to rigorous and informed debate. That is somebody who has a real burning loathing for young people and wants to be able to assert her generation's dominance by shitting on them from a great height. That's what the whole row is about. And I personally think that those students conducted themselves with incredible poise. They argued their point really articulately in spite of having been confronted with really childish toddler-like behavior from people who are supposed to be responsible for educating them. And I also think, and this is a really key point, that the walkout that they staged is an example of free expression. Sure, Rod Little has got the same legally protected rights to free expression as the rest of us. That doesn't mean he's got a God-given right to an engaged and appreciative audience over a formal dinner. That is a completely unreasonable expectation. So I think it's frightening that when we're talking about free speech, one of the things that we do is we look at other forms of free expression, lawfully protected free expression, uh, completely innocuous, completely nonviolent, completely peaceful, and we go, there's something threatening there. And we don't see anything threatening about the man with a long documented history of racist views. And I think it's interesting that he denies some of the comments made by that Millwall account, Monkey MFC, despite the fact that they're very similar to some of the things that he's published in his own name uh, in national newspapers. Some of the history of disgusting racism, stuff which has got really no academic value at all. And we see him as some kind of tribune for rigorous academic debate. No, he's a boor, he's a bloviating bigot, and he doesn't deserve to be anywhere near a university. It says something about the state of our public debate that he's being dragged in as some kind of expert on anything to address students. You know, I want to have my dinner without hearing much about his dangling penis. Thank you very much. I think most people do. It's, It's just gross. Let's return to the principal's wife, um, who loves shouting ass. Dorothy Luckhurst is a former Tory parliamentary candidate. She was, in fact, on Cameron's A-list, so the people he thought, we need to get these people in parliament as MPs. She didn't win her seat. Um, I looked at her Twitter bio today, though. I think this says quite a lot. All it says about her is what school she went to. This is a grown woman. It also says what university she went to. Attended Westbourne School for Girls Glasgow and graduate of the University of St Andrews. If you scroll through her Twitter, it's lots of like Toby Young and The Spectator, etc. But this was what really intrigued me, Ash, because have you come across this phenomenon of like grown adults who, you know, when you ask them to describe themselves in 10 words, say, I went to this school when I was presumably 12. 
But does that not sum up this whole thing? Like an awful lot of the sort of moral panic around what's going on at universities is being driven by embarrassing adults who are way too old to be deriving that much identity (laughs) from their time in educational institutions. And so I think this woman, you know, with us, 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 having her private boarding school in her bio as if it was some kind of laudable achievement on her part is it's like you know it's like the ur form of the grown adult who is overly concerned with what's going on in universities you know i can see 30 from where i am michael i can see 30 from where i am they still get calls from producers going well do you want to talk about what this university is doing and one of the things that i make clear is like yes as long as i can say that it's embarrassing for me and everyone else who is on this panel to be getting wound up about it. All right. We have no place in 18 year olds business. Okay. You know, I now shop at mango, right? I don't need any of the, you know, the C-pop lot in my eyelids. I just think it's frankly embarrassing that this woman who's, you know, I assume a bit older than me is still bragging about what school she went to and getting up in the face of undergrads going ass, 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 ass. That would be embarrassing if you were a third year rugby player let alone a woman who's in, I don't know, her 50s and 60s. Jesus Christ. I think that was incredibly well put. That was a good sort of like psychological breakdown of what is going on here. This is someone who is so attached to her time at school and university that it still defines her identity. And that is why she's so tied up with what now is welcome to be said at a school dinner. Thank you, everyone. Ash Sarkar, it's been an absolute pleasure, as always, being joined by you this evening. Thank you for having me, Michael. You can get back to whatever you're doing, whatever you're snorting in the toilet before we started. We'll be back on Wednesday at 7pm, so make sure to hit subscribe. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navara Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com support.